When she started conducting experiments at the Large Hadron Collider in Geneva as part of her PhD program, she knew high energy particle physics was her thing. Hi, welcome to this episode of College Matters Alma Matters. Isobel Ojawo is an assistant professor in the physics department at Princeton University. Professor Ojawo grew up enjoying math and science in school. Today, she shares this passion and knowledge with her students at Princeton while pursuing research around what she calls the super fascinating particle in physics, Higgs boson. Let's huddle and listen in as Professor Ojawo reflects on her physics journey so far. Thanks for making the time to talk about your professional journey so far and provide some insights. Um, as we may have talked earlier, this is, you know, our audience is typically aspiring students from uh, all parts of the world focused on Asia and Middle East to a large extent. But, um, you know, these conversations are generally beneficial to all, just about everybody. So thank you for really making the time here. Of course, no problem. Cool. So um, maybe we can just dive in. Um, maybe you could share a little bit about your professional background, give us an overview, and then we can dive deeper from there. Sure. Um, so I'm a, a high energy particle physicist. I'm an assistant professor at Princeton University. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I'm experimentalist in particular. So um, most of my work actually has been with the LHC, uh, the Large Hadron Collider over at CERN, mm-hmm. uh, and, I'm, and I'm a member of the uh, CMS experiment, so Compact Muon Solenoid. Mm-hmm. Um, so I've worked with this experiment for approximately, I think probably close to 10 years now, wow. um, as a graduate student and a postdoc, and then now as a, as a faculty member. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so before that, I uh, actually, so I... I went to my, I grew up in Minnesota um, and I did my undergraduate at Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute, uh, Mm -hmm. which is a a small engineering focused school in upstate New York. Sure. Um, And then after I graduated, I actually, uh, I went straight into engineering for two years. Mm -hmm. Um, And so was, I spent some time uh, at uh, Boeing Mm -hmm. in El Segundo, California. Uh Um, I I lived right next to the beach, actually. It It was kind of a... It was a nice change from Minnesota and a sure. nice change from upstate New York. Uh-huh. Uh, uh, and I worked there as a, it, I, working on survivability analysis for satellites. Uh, so basically studying space effects mm-hmm. um, on uh, electronics boards um, and trying to make sure that they would survive their um, planned lifespan, which is typically around 15 years. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we'd think, to think about things like... Um, uh, so mi- micrometeoroids, uh, everything from from that to radiation effects to single event upsets and all these sorts of interesting things that uh, that can happen in space. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, but from there, I, I decided I didn't want to spend the rest of my life in industry mm-hmm. uh, and applied for graduate school uh, and uh, applied for graduate school at the University of Wisconsin Madison and got in and um, yeah so. Uh, it, Happy to be back in academia. Uh-huh. Um, definitely, it wasn't the, the most trivial of transitions, I would say, but um, definitely a worthwhile. And it was definitely a great experience to to try out working in industry. 
definitely mm-hmm. so maybe we start a little bit at the beginning um mm-hmm. um you know how did you decide to pursue physics was that sort of a passion or you just kind of fell into it how did that happen so um in many regards i was actually quite lucky so mm-hmm. um my parents always made a very strong emphasis on education mm-hmm. um but the the best elementary school actually in my area was a catholic school mm-hmm. even if my family wasn't is not religious my father's jewish and so we were very religious but even from that time you know we were forced we were required to attend religion classes and uh and you know they would talk about things about the origin of life and the origin of the universe in mm-hmm. a very religious sort of way mm-hmm. um but you know even from the time i was quite young i found it a little bit unsatisfactory okay it's an interesting story but mm-hmm. i i wanted to understand deeply what is what are the what is the origin of the universe why are we here how do things mm-hmm. fit together um so even from from that time i was quite interested in pursuing physics and understanding the world to a deeper uh to a deeper level um and so that kind of it made it caused me to pursue physics and mathematics quite uh quite strongly mm-hmm. um i was also always interested in um computers uh and taking you know t- taking things apart putting them back together um understanding what things are made of so be- that combined with mathematics i think i fell into experimental physics quite quite readily um because i like building things and i like doing and i really enjoyed mathematics and uh i really have a deep understand or deep curiosity about uh about why we're here and how things work together uh-huh. and all these things that are quite um uh pervasive for physics so did you find any um challenges um getting into physics and math or was that pretty well um encouraged in your school and stuff i mean how how did you find i mean and i'm asking this question only as there's a lot of discussion about girls and stem and all that but um you know you obviously it was a passion at a pretty young age and uh, you i'm assuming got all the encouragement and motivation to do that to pursue- so for my Yeah, so for my for my parents point of view they were they're quite happy if uh, we were pursuing stem. Uh-huh. Um but uh but I often found myself to be the only girl in in many of my classes or you know one of you know one of maybe 10% of the class or 5% of the class uh-huh. especially when I did something that's more physics or engineering related. Um so I so I'd say you know I, and also I there were some non subtle uh there were some subtle upsets so okay feeling like the being the only woman in or the only girl in uh in some physics summer programs or or in the chess club for right. instance um, <laughs> but then you know every, every once in a while you'd also have uh i would have some somebody who was not so subtle about and tell me oh well girls don't actually have any sense of direction just so you know <laughs> and i just thought that <laughs> and i was <laughs> i think somebody someone said that to me when i was uh, probably in about 14th 12 uh-huh. 13 or 14 years old and i just thought it, i was completely uh obviously i remember to this day that someone decided that they needed to tell me that that women don't have any sense of direction uh so there's definitely <laughs> so <laughs> it was quite funny for me to be honest because i i always enjoyed uh you know following along on the map we were going in the car sure. i just thought it was quite silly uh but yeah you know something that i i definitely noticed and remembered um So, so from that point of view, you know, it's a little bit more like you you don't necessarily feel like you're the 
the the general demographic or you, right. you feel a little bit like you're a, a little bit alone in, in uh yeah not being part of the regular group uh certainly but um but overall i will say that my my family was very my parents are very supportive of us pursuing um physics and mathematics and things like this so so that was lucky in that regard so you obviously brushed all that off and so you went off to rpi so mm-hmm. so talk to us a little bit about that experience, I mean, the RPA experience you did, physics and math, you said there. How were the mm-hmm. undergraduate years and, you know, how did that shape sort of what was to come? So I, I really um, enjoyed my time at RPI. Uh, so it was actually one of the first, I was one of the first classes um, mm-hmm. where they required, they had a, this laptop program. And so they required that everybody in the school have their own laptop. Mm-hmm. Um, so this was a new program at the time, uh, and so um, that was actually, it was a very good thing for them to implement. Uh, so they were very technology focused. Um, this was back in the mid to, you know, mid to early 2000s. Yeah. Uh, they're, they're very, very technology focused. Um, they, uh, it was, it's a, a relatively small school with relatively small class sizes. Um, mm-hmm. So oftentimes I would have, uh, I think my largest class was probably on the order of 200, but that was for a general C++ course. Mm-hmm. Um, but usually it was on the order of, you know, 20 or 25 students per class. Wow. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, so it was it was really nice. Um, and, you know, there's um, it, there's some choice. I was, I was worried at the time that I wanted to go to a school that uh, wasn't really in a big city because I actually cared about quite a lot about my education and I thought mm-hmm. that being in a, in a large city would be a little bit distracting um, sure. so I, I I picked something uh, so Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute is out in Troy uh, New York which is near Albany yeah um, and so it's a it's a quieter place and uh, it's very conducive to I think you know working hard and uh, and focusing on your studies um, I know it's not for everybody but this was something I was looking for uh, in my undergraduate experience. Um, so, but also Rensselaer has, uh, has a very good financial aid program. It's, a, it's an expensive school, but uh, uh, so they have this thing called the Rensselaer Medal. Um, so, so this was something that I had gotten, mm-hmm. uh, but, but essentially it's a, a scholarship uh, program and you could even ask your high school teacher to nominate you for this. Mm-hmm. Um, they give about one per, per high school. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they they offset some of the cost of you attending, uh, yeah, of, of you attending Rensselaer. Um, so that was quite useful for me actually, uh, and very much appreciated. Mm-hmm. No, that's that's really nice, nice to know mm-hmm. as well. Now, mm-hmm. how were the how were the students? How were your peers? How did you find the general uh, student body and your classmates? Um, I I will say that uh, it was a very um, it was a very tech savvy. I don't want to say nerdy, but it was a very tech savvy. <laughs> yeah, it's a very. It was a very nerdy, internet tech savvy school. I actually really, I really enjoyed that about it. Everyone was um, was super interested in engineering and computing. Mm-hmm. Uh, people were doing LAN parties. Um, you know, there was a strong emphasis on on uh, paying attention to technology. I think they've they've branched out a little bit more in recent years to be uh-huh. a, a bit more all around education. And yeah. have more liberal arts program, 
But uh, just to, to give you an example, so it's, it used to be a religious school, and it's not anymore. And they, they put the computer lab in the, the previous church. Uh, oh, really? So <laughs> this is how serious they, we just say this is how serious they take their technology there. But okay, it's a very um, yeah, it's the the students there. The class sizes are small. You get to know your your cohort very well. You see the same people over the entire four years you're there. Um, you get to know the uh, faculty very well, um, mm-hmm. even as an undergraduate. Um, yeah, and they they do look after you actually. Um, I've the yeah I I formed some very very good relationships while I was at Rensselaer, uh, and people who you know cared quite a lot about uh, my education. And the students um, were from all mm-hmm. over the place, right? At RPI, I mean. Um, yeah. Yes, yeah, all over the yes, all over the place. We had one, uh, we had a uh, had students, yeah, literate, from, certainly from all over the world. Uh, mm-hmm. So, um, so you finish RPI, and then mm-hmm. um, is that when you uh, took on this engineering job? Um, uh, yeah. That? So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so so I think I think you briefly mentioned that. So how did that come about? I mean, you didn't want to go to grad school at that point, or did you make that decision only after you worked for a couple of years? So at the time, I actually had a bit of. So the other point is that actually our RPI is is a bit costly. We have some issues with student debt. So I had some debt from from being a part of or to, from going to the school. It wasn't so much, but you know, yeah. some. So I wanted to to get a job for a little bit of time to pay okay. some of that off. Yeah. Um, but then, but again, the nice thing then about RPI is that they they have a lot of uh, contacts at uh, major industries or major companies, um, and so they have job fairs and career fairs, and uh, and there's a very strong recruiting uh, for for various. So I know Boeing will recruit on a regular basis. North of Grumman, um, you know, many different sure. uh, yeah places will will go come up on a regular basis. So I actually. I attended a career fair and I uh, went through, I think, about so one interview on campus and mm-hmm. then one interview at Boeing and they hired me, um, yeah, to, nearly directly. So it, the, the, uh, once you, if you do a, a degree like, um, yeah, if you do, I did a degree in physics and mathematics and even with that, uh, it was quite easy to pursue uh, an engineering position, especially with uh, with a school like RPI, where they have a lot of contacts with with industry. So, at that point, did you already have an interest in high energy physics, or is that something that came up later? Yeah, I, well, I was more interested in astronomy and cosmology as a undergraduate, and so I did take some. Astro- astronomy and cosmology classes um, when I was ended uh, a number of research experience for undergraduates. So uh, one at Arecibo in Puerto Rico, mm-hmm. um, the Arecibo, Arecibo Observatory, and then another actually at the University of Wisconsin-Madison uh, with, um, with the astronomy uh, group there. Um, and so I, I was I was interested in that, but I think around that time, so, you know, this was 2000 and uh, this was around 2007, and then around that time was when the LHC was was just coming online, and I've, I actually got quite interested in, in particle physics and the, the, the large collaborations and the possibility of working together to, to do something a little bit more interesting. Um, mm-hmm. Okay, so uh, mm-hmm. tell me you know, a little bit about, 
your transition or your decision to go pursue PhD? Um, how did that come about? I mean, you could have, you'd worked for a couple of years. I, I mean, you said you either had enough of industry or you felt you wanted to study more or you wanted to pursue a career in academia. How did that come about? So it was, it was actually quite, there was a, a specific um, thing that I was working on. Mm-hmm. So there, a lot of, some of the work I was doing was radiation, uh, so radiation effects on, uh, on so for instance, capacitors or, uh-huh. um, or you know, electronics in general. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's there this interesting uh, phenomena where, um, okay, so let's, I'll explain. So if you want to uh, see how much radiation a given part can handle, mm-hmm. uh, it will be designed, of course, in a certain way. But what we will also do is actually get a radioactive source and take mm-hmm. the part and then dose it with some amount of radiation. Okay. Uh, and so the a part in space will want to survive, will want it up there and, and to survive a high dose of, mm-hmm. or, you know, high higher radiation than we see on Earth due to mm-hmm. the atmosphere. Um, so, of course, uh, the space part will be up in space, you know, for the, the electronics part will be up in space for 15 years. Mm-hmm. Um, but we don't want to spend that much time testing uh, the part. Sure. So what we do is we dose it with a high amount of radiation mm-hmm. uh, and then trying to recreate the amount of dose that you would actually see in space. Mm-hmm. Um, but what we found was that, uh, in fact, the amount of radiation that it, do- it doesn't matter really the overall amount of radiation because mm-hmm. a lower dose rate over a slow amount of time was, was not behaving the same way as mm-hmm. a higher do- dose mm-hmm. rate over uh, uh, yeah over the same period of time. So, uh-huh. um, so this is called enhanced low dose rate uh, radiation effects. Mm-hmm. Um, and so uh, I was I thought that was a really interesting and strange thing that radiation could behave differently and it has to do with uh, how um, ionization of of, um, of atoms um, and how this will then slowly migrate and cause some defect in the parts. Uh-huh. Uh, but you know, the once we discovered this issue, basically the the point is that it was somewhere like Boeing or somewhere where you're doing something for industry. They say, okay, we'll find the part that's going to work and replace it with that one, and then we go about our day. Right. Um, right. <laughs> but I was, you know, I was deeply fascinated by trying to understand why that would actually happen. But uh-huh. uh, but it was it wasn't part of my my job description sure, basically sure. to to even try to figure that out. Uh, so I decided at that point that I, you know I probably I wouldn't be happy in industry if I can't um, try to understand these these uh, these bigger issues. So I would, I, in fact, I would even go in on the weekend and try to understand you know read more documents and and spend more time just because I thought this this problem was was so fascinating. Um, but you know this isn't something that they're paying you for in industry. You're just trying to to meet some of the, the uh, specifications. Sure. Uh, so at that point, I decided that I should probably not uh, stick in engineering and I should probably go and, and do something that's a little bit more fundamental research-based. Uh, so that's when I decided that to, uh, to reapply, to, to apply for graduate school and to go, um, yeah, and to, to go back to academia. So how did you end up at uh, Wisconsin? Madison. Um, <laughs> uh, so, so yeah, I applied to a few different places. Um, 
So I wanted a place, actually, this was around the time when the LHC was coming online. Yeah. Uh, and, I, and I did want to go to a place that had a, a strong LHC program. Uh, uh-huh. And so um, Madison has a very good uh, at trigger program. Uh, and also, I, I will say that part of it was is because of my parents, because they wanted to be, they, they're in Minnesota and they wanted to be oh, close okay. to Madison. <laughs> so, well, that's, um, that's a fair enough. Uh, yeah, that's a was, good enough reason. So. Uh, it, certainly, I, I, certainly, my top priority was to find a place with a, a strong LHC program. Uh-huh. Um, but, uh, but I had one or two other places I was considering, and, and then I got... Uh, uh, yeah, I got a little bit uh, stronger by my mother to just to, to stay over and uh, just come back to the Midwest for a bit. Um, but OK, the, I, in the end, it, the University of Wisconsin-Madison actually has an excellent program. Yeah. Um, and uh, I'm extremely happy. So I can say, you know, maybe my mother had some uh, premonitions as well, but I'm extremely <laughs> happy with, <laughs> with my uh, my career there. Um, I had some excellent mentors and an excellent. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, an excellent uh, time with this group at the University of Wisconsin Madison. Yeah. So how? Yeah. So um, how how were those years? I mean, how was the whole PhD program? And obviously, um, were you able to do um, dive into what you know uh, you were uh, what you got fascinated at Boeing with? I mean, the radiation mm-hmm. effects, and um, or were you or did you broaden your horizon? I mean, how did that whole program go? Uh, well so um well so so i will say that i I wasn't without struggle because i i did have to get back into the after taking two years to work in industry i had to take two years to get back to taking classes again which is actually quite a lot of work so if you if you do decide to take this non-traditional path um it's uh, it isn't yeah it's, it's not necessarily quite that easy to do um but i uh i I had said already that I was interested in working with the LHC um, and one of the groups there, the, the CMS group, um, uh, who is which currently led by Sudhara Dasu uh, yeah. and was previously led by Wesley Smith. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I decided to work with them and they were happy to have uh, more people that were going into the program. So it actually worked out quite easily to join their group Um but and then eventually, after two years of, of doing work, then I went back to uh, then I, I went and moved to CERN, actually, and spent seven years in Geneva. Well, yeah. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, I, I have to ask you this now when mm-hmm. it sounds like you're actually going to the industry gave you a, a good reason to go pursue a deeper um, you know, graduate study, for example. Right. I mean, it, mm-hmm. if you had gone straight out of. Um, and after undergrad program, uh, maybe that drive or motivation or um, may or may not have been there. I mean, I don't know. But this problem probably you you were, you know, you became aware of this uh, opportunity or mm-hmm. issue mm-hmm. because you were able to work there. So I think in some ways you have to mm-hmm. thank that break, right? I mean, I think. Uh, yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, it's sort of interesting. No, exactly. I, I just uh, so I mean. Um, it, it, I also felt a lot of uh, maybe maybe too much pressure. I felt a lot of pressure as well because I I had been making you know a reasonable amount of money and I I decided to give everything sure. up and and go back to graduate school. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So um, so anything more on the? I mean, did you teach while you were a PhD student? Oh, oh, you said you spent most of your mm-hmm. time in. I mean, you spent seven years in Geneva. So you were mm-hmm. not in Madison 
all the time then while you were doing your graduate program? Right. So for the first two years, uh, we actually we have a bit of a heavy um, a teaching load for graduate students. So you teach three uh, recitations mm-hmm. uh, for for class. Uh, t- typically, this was what I did. There are other classes that you can uh, do. So we taught. I taught the uh, physics for um, for juniors for uh, the for the biology or the pre med students. Mm-hmm. Um, Essentially, we had to uh, teach three classes, two days per week, and then uh, two two-hour labs. Uh, mm-hmm. And so it was a, it was a good ex- it was a good opportunity to to you know meet students and try out education and see whether or not uh, you would want to stay in academia for the long term as well. So, sure. Mm-hmm. So it gave you a good uh, playground yeah. for that. Exactly. Uh- So then you finish your PhD and um, and by then I guess you were oh well anything interesting in Geneva I mean is there um, mm-hmm. spent quite a bit of time there um, and so anything interesting or um, any different I mean obviously conditions might have been different the experience any experience there that might be worth sharing. Well, so I, I felt like I actually, um, I, I felt like I uh, did not have the easiest time with classes. I didn't have the easiest time. You know, I was, I was okay. I, I did fine, but I wasn't, uh, I wasn't maybe always the top student. But uh-huh. finally, when I got into research, that's when I felt like, oh, this is, I know what I want to do, and I'm happy that I'm doing it, and I'm, I'm interested to work, uh, you know, very, very long hours just because I, I really enjoyed everything I was doing. So. Um, so in Geneva, I, I worked on a, a variety of things. Um, so as a, you start doing some sort of analysis work, uh, so analyzing data sets, uh, I also got to do some detector on-call operations. So mm-hmm. essentially, um, we the the CMS experiment uh, costs essentially uh, if you do if you do the math, it costs about a a hundred dollars per second to uh, collect data. Uh Yes. Uh, And so when you're in the middle of an LHC run, um, if any, any time one of the detector, the, the the CMS detector itself, it's about, you know, 10, uh, five or six stories high. Uh uh, And there's a very large number of components. Um, I worked on the, the data acquisition. So the data collection and deciding which data we collect. Sure. Uh, this is called the trigger system. And um, any time that a detector was offline and caused us to not be collecting data would cost approximately $100 per second. Mm-hmm. Um, so so really doing detector on-call operations was was very highly stressful. You'd get called up at 3 in the morning uh, and mm-hmm. you'd have to go to fix some <laughs> problem. And and if you didn't, then you would be in very big trouble the next, you know, right. a lot of people would be talking about it. So yeah. it was definitely a high stress position, but um, but it was also quite fun and exciting. You know, you're you're really in the thick of things and right. an important part of the experiment. Uh, so I had quite a lot of fun with that. Uh, and I was really interested in doing data analysis uh, and also doing it quickly. And also there was some competition there, which I really enjoyed. Um, mm-hmm. trying to get things done, you know, the best and faster than the rest of the group. So there's a, there's a large, uh, there's a lot of collaboration when you're part of a community yeah. uh, like CERN, but there's also a lot of competition. It was quite fun. I, I really enjoyed it. Mm-hmm. 
Okay, so you finish your PhD, and then I guess you had pretty much decided it was academia um, and not industry, mm-hmm. right? With your experience, so when you chose to go into academia, did you, was it the research that attracted you more, um, or the prospect of teaching, or sort of both? Um, a bit of both. I mean, I. I, I really, and uh, the research is, is fantastic. And especially mm-hmm. if you're in academia, um, let's say that we solve some issue. We, you know, we discover something. You can always pivot and you can pick a new problem to solve. Right. And I think that's, I, that really makes me quite excited. Uh-huh. Um, so we have so many problems left in physics that I, I don't think they'll be solved in my lifetime. <laughs> but <okay. laughs> So there's always another problem too. You know, dark matter has been around for uh, over a hundred years at this point. So it's you know things like this that we'll, we'll always have another bigger problem to work on. Uh, but you know that's one of the exciting things about being in academia is that you can always work on the next cool, new, interesting problem and try to solve it. Um, but also, you know, I I, I really enjoy um, mentoring my students and uh, finding students who have the same amount of drive and interest as I did, or mm-hmm. uh, or, or finding students with unique perspectives. Um, you know, people who are. Uh, yeah, just really want to get or super passionate about the field. I, I find that um, quite motivating for me as a, uh, as you know, a research advisor. Uh-huh. Um, but also, it reminds me, you know, why am I doing this? I'm doing this to, uh, you know, to educate students and to further fundamental research and to help everybody understand a little bit more about how the world and how the universe works. Um, so I really do. It's, uh, it's being able to mentor and uh, work with students is one of the very special things about being an academic and researcher. Yeah, that sounds mm-hmm. really awesome. Um, mm-hmm. Before I ask you about Princeton, I, I, you know, um, as a researcher um, mm-hmm. and someone who's been in this area now for almost a decade, right? How? Mm-hmm. What are the things that excite you most? I mean, you know, um, obviously, um, what are I guess my, the way I want to ask the question is uh, what are the big problems you're trying to solve or that you're trying to sort of figure out uh, that, uh, that, you know, keeps you motivated? I mean, I can see that from your voice and from your passion that you're really into <laughs> research. So I, I just, just uh, from a, um, what drives you kind of point of view, what, what are the types of problems uh, you're chasing right now? Um, well, so a lot of my research uh, has been based on Higgs physics. So uh, you guys remember the Higgs boson discovery. Yeah. Um, so yes. my work is, is primarily on detecting a, a particular decay of the Higgs boson called Higgs tau leptons. Mm-hmm. Um, but the Higgs boson itself is a super fascinating particle because there's, it's, it is fairly unique in, its, in how it's composed. It's not like any of the other particles. We mm-hmm. have this this these new mechanisms for it interacts with other matter in uh you know in a way that's not completely different from the rest of the standard model but also quite different it's um it's a scalar it's a it's very very different from the other particles um and there's a there are a lot of theories about the higgs boson mm-hmm. uh explaining things like dark matter or uh the the asymmetry between um uh, between particles and antiparticles in the universe. So, uh, so the things that I'm excited about is doing uh, is understanding more about the Higgs, um, doing precision measurements, and seeing mm-hmm. if we can 
look for new particles that are um, that will either interact with the Higgs or decay, uh, or the Higgs can decay to etc. Um, and so there are we have an interesting process going on right now called snow mass, uh, <laughs> where the particle physics gets community gets at least I think it's interesting the particle <laughs> physics community yeah. gets together and tries to decide what they'll be doing for the next 10, 20, 30 plus years. Um, so there's a number of new colliders that are being proposed right now. Uh -huh. uh, one one is called FCC. Uh, it's basically taking the regular LHC tunnel and then adding on one more tunnel. So the LHC will be used as a as a first ring of acceleration. And then you have a they're going to build uh, dig an even even longer one uh -huh. uh, that will go basically under Lake Geneva. Um, it's wow. 100. I believe it's 100 kilometers in uh, in circumference. Um, whereas the current one is only about 27 kilometers. Uh, so uh, so that could be interesting. Uh, we have other colliders proposed, uh, for instance, the ILC, uh, the international, the, uh, which, which is going to be an, a linear collider, which uh -huh. is a linear collider in Japan. Um, that would be very interesting because it can go to super high center of mass energies. Uh -huh. um, and then also they have uh, the, this thing called a muon collider, which is completely... Uh, beyond it. It's very interesting, but it's even far out there for physicists. But, you know, it could be something we think about someday. Um, so I'm really excited, actually, uh, by the by the prospects of doing Higgs precision measurements and by uh -huh. the, the the future colliders that uh, that are currently being proposed and should be built within my lifetime. Um, well, good luck with that. I mean, I think it sounds <laughs> no, really, I mean, it's, it's no, uh, yeah. mm -hmm. uh, now, just out of curiosity, how big is this? Mm -hmm. How big is the particle physics community you mentioned? How big? How many people are there in this worldwide? Worldwide, I would say um, there are something like uh, probably on the order of ten to fifteen thousand. So it, wow. it depends. Oh. There's, there's a few. Yeah, there are a few different levels of particle physics. Um, I, so I actually worked. Uh, I did a uh, um, an exchange program with. Uh, the group at TIFR in Mumbai. Yeah, um, yeah, and yeah, and they're they're actually I quite I quite like them. I work with work with some of the students from there as well from time to time. Um, I quite like this group quite a lot. Mm -hmm. uh, but I would say something you know around maybe fifteen thousand. But okay, there's there's different levels of particle physics. Um, sure. Yeah. Okay, so. that's that's a pretty big size. I mean, I I, mm -hmm. I would have imagined a few thousand. Let's come to Princeton then. Now, mm -hmm. you've been um, teaching for a couple of years now. You've been an mm -hmm. assistant professor. So how's, how's that? How's the, um, you've been now at a couple of different places, obviously, um, mm -hmm. uh, you know, most of the time studying, but now you're actually teaching. So how's the Princeton experience? What, is, um, what are the students like? It'd be great to get some perspective from you on that. Uh, so the students, I've, I've really enjoyed my interactions with the students. So I'm teaching uh, a, an, a freshman level course at this point. So mm -hmm. the people are just coming in uh, to Princeton. So they're actually, I think they're, so the, the students overall are extremely polite um, <laughs> as, as a cohort, which, <laughs> which is, you know, it's important not to under, undervalue that because yes. You know, somebody who values your time is is always appreciated because you know faculty are busy. So when you when you meet a student who values your time, it gives you a little more incentive to to want to you know to value their time and to sure. want to make the, to to help them to succeed. Um, so that's one thing that I, I've definitely found that the students are extremely 
they're polite and they're uh, they're interested and engaging. Um, but also, I think oftentimes they have quite a unique perspective uh-huh. on on things. So they are um, they're trying to think about the world. They they're of course strong academically, but also trying to think about the world in a, u- a unique way uh-huh. and thinking about what sort of vision they have for themselves. Uh, this is something I see quite a lot. They're always thinking about what they want to do next uh-huh. and how. Uh, what they want to accomplish in their careers. Okay, you know, things will, um, things can always evolve as you're uh, doing your academic studies, but they do definitely have a, a mind towards uh, what their long-term trajectory would look like. Uh, they do, they work very hard, but also in general have a, have a, a diverse uh, level of skills. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we have, as you know, students who are, um, doing acting, they're in, in my classes. Students who are on the volleyball team are doing crew. Mm-hmm. Uh, some are interested interested in robotics. Um, others are doing computer science. It's a it's a very broad range of students, and I think actually Princeton values that quite a lot. Is to have some um, unique perspective and some unique uh, um, angle or think something that drives you. Uh, this is something that. Uh, that I see quite a lot in all the students is they have some drive, uh, something that they're very passionate about. How does that mm-hmm. sort of compare with students you may have taught at Wisconsin or something? I mean, do you find mm-hmm. differences? I mean, if that were, if, you know, just at a very broad level. Mm-hmm. So the, the thing is that, that I can say is that at University of Wisconsin, you can have some very, very good students as well. Yeah. Um, yeah. So the, in, and you can get a very, high quality education at a place like University of Wisconsin. Uh, and I know there's some some difference between Ivy League and not Ivy League. Um, but I, I would say that uh, I've had very bright, I've taught at Wisconsin, I've had some extremely bright, capable students who are extremely driven. And I see this also at Princeton. Hmm. Um, I, the one thing I'll say is that uh, perhaps we had a, a larger fraction of the of the classes um, in Princeton, probably quite driven. But you know, in in the right uh, University of Wisconsin can be can be right for uh, many people, um, and it was definitely the right choice for me. I think that I I really had a a, a wonderful opportunity there. Um, so I the class sizes, for instance, uh, for instance, at Princeton will always nearly always be quite small. There aren't so many classes. Uh, so you might have a 200 person lecture, but then you are often taught in recitation by 25, you know, a 20 person course. Uh, so that's something that's, uh, that's quite useful. But I've, if, yeah, I think that the students at Wisconsin, you will have some that are just fantastic as well. Um, mm-hmm. Sure. Now, how about international students? Would, would they, mm-hmm. um, are they a larger fraction in e- e- either of these places or are they about the same? And how did you find, how do you find those students from other countries? So I would say that the, um, the fraction of international students are, is approximately the same. Uh, my personal experience is that they work extremely, that the international students work extremely hard as a, as a general rule. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it's something that's always impressed me about the, you know, students, I think if they're they're making this whole commitment to go to school in another country, then they're, they're going to work extremely hard uh, because it's, they really committed themselves to something big. And it, it's probably something to what I felt when I was going from, um, from industry to uh, back to academia. So I, I found them to be extremely hardworking. Mm-hmm. <laughs> 
Okay, so I want to come back to something that we started out with, you know, how you got into physics. And mm-hmm. I'd like you to, you know, share some thoughts or advice for girls who are in high school who, you know, should pursue science. I mean, motivate them to stick with science, not just pursue. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, things are getting better. Oh, yeah, maybe I should ask you this one question before we... Mm-hmm. So in your classes now, what is the proportion of girls um, versus boys kind of thing or you know men women I guess at that age I don't know what to call them but um, Mm -hmm. so um, um, Mm -hmm. so is are you finding in your physics classes for example at Princeton uh, what is the distribution like Um, so yeah so it's different at different levels so uh, so freshman year so for example Mm -hmm. for the so for the the majors it's something uh, on the order of 20 to 30 percent female for the physics Okay. To male for the for the majors, um, for the uh, for the undergraduates uh, who are non-majors, it's probably closer to fifty-fifty, as it's a, a general uh, a general course that many different programs uh, are supposed to take. Um, but yeah, it's it's probably closer to it's about closer to thirty percent. It'll vary year by year, but this is yeah okay. uh, quite average. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So coming back to the thing, so your thoughts or views on any advice uh, or advice for girls in high school now um, regarding science? I mean, if they're interested in mm-hmm. science. So what would you tell them? So so one thing I'll say is that this is... Um, so the one thing I'll say is that the, my experience is, is, is certainly going to be different from the experience that girls are having currently because sure. things are, are rapidly changing. So, uh, so the point is to always it's good to take advice but it's also good to to think about it with comparison to your own situation yeah of course the there's the the situations that i see now is not necessarily actual bias and that you know out, out front bias and out, out you know out in front having racism it's more systemic bias or systemic racism yeah um that is it, it pervade it's quite pervasive in that you don't realize for instance that you're treating uh, a female researcher different from a male researcher you don't realize you're treating an international student different from a from a a, a local student you, it's something that people don't realize uh-huh. um and so i think that the point is that you know this can be seen as something that can defeat you or it can be seen as something that motivates you. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is, this is at least my own philosophy. Sure. So I, you know, I, I try to think about it if I'm, if I, for instance, am having some systemic bias in my life towards women or towards, yeah. uh, towards, you know, racism or whatever. I think it's something that we should all think about when we are, uh, when we're interacting with, you know, our colleagues or our students and or et cetera. Um, but also, if you're seeing it in your own life, you should try to take it as something that will um, that makes you more determined. Because if you are able to stay in the field, if you if you find ways to overcome these situations, uh, then you can have the opportunity to make life better for the people who come after you. Um, so this is something I've, I've had some really great mentors in my life. And actually, I'll say uh, Siddhar Dasu has been one of them and, and Lisa Everett at yeah. the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Uh, people who, you know, they realize that there is systemic issues um, and they've helped me figure out how to overcome them. And so from having excellent mentors and finding people that I relate to, I've been able to also provide this um, 
provide this perspective to, or I hope I provide this perspective to my own students uh, and trying to get them to use this as an opportunity to think, okay, you know, I shouldn't take so seriously the criticism uh, someone is giving me because it's it could be biased, or I should I should use this as an opportunity to uh, to make myself stronger and and do my work better. Um, and also, if you if you stick around and you stay in the field, you have the opportunity to make it better for other people. Sure. Uh, and so I sometimes I think that's part of uh, the mission that we should have as as researchers um, is to think of ways to to do better. Uh, my advice for girls, though, is to just, you know, don't give up, <laughs> even if you're even if you take a non-traditional path, um, even if you don't get into even if you don't uh, go to graduate school right away. Or, if, for instance, if you have trouble in examinations, um, there's there's you have opportunities to overcome it reach out to people who uh who you think who you get along with if you don't get along with your advisor find a new advisor um it's a, a lot of this is about personal relationships and mm-hmm. uh find people who support you uh and and listen to them is my is my strong advice um and then learn learn when not to listen as well mm-hmm. you know while um, you were in school and you you mentioned a couple of instances where you might have, where you heard uh, mm-hmm. people basically telling you that you were in the wrong place, but you somehow soldiered on, right? I mean, you didn't let it bother you. So there was something that you were able to do. And mm-hmm. I was just sort of tapping into that saying, is there anything uh, yeah. I mean, mm-hmm. that you did that, you know, might be worth it? No, no. Go ahead. In, in in particular, no, I actually had, uh, when I went back to graduate school, and maybe I, I could have mentioned this earlier, when I went back to graduate school, I actually had a very difficult time. We have this, this six-hour exam called the qualifying examination, and I had yeah. a very difficult time getting prepared for that and coming back to it mm-hmm. um, after being away from school for so long. And so um, I was very lucky that uh, one, of the, uh, one of the faculty at uh, – University of Wisconsin Madison basically reached out to me, and uh, she she mentored me a bit. But essentially, all she she told me was that I could do it, mm-hmm. um, and helped me create a study schedule. So I was in the study boot camp uh, for myself, and after um, you know going uh, going over all the questions, being honest with myself about what I understood and what I didn't understand. Um, and she met with me on a, you know, almost weekly basis for sometimes and usually not even teaching me anything, just uh, giving me some moral support. Right. Um, and in, in the end, with all the with the, the work I actually did, I got the highest score on this this examination. Fantastic. Um, so, yeah. yeah. So after after, you know, not doing well. Uh, and then getting the top score, um, it it gave me the confidence actually to to feel like you know I do deserve to be here and I am um, I'm capable and uh, and just because you know it takes somebody um, just because you didn't have all the tools to begin with to to succeed it doesn't mean that you can't learn the tools if you if you have the right mentor if you have the right opportunities or or trying to uh, if, yeah, if you have the right mentor, the right, reach out to people and try to um, overcome any difficulties you have. So it's not giving up is, is I think, super important as well. Um, no, that's, uh, that's excellent. I mean, I congratulate you for what you've accomplished so far and wish you all the very best. I'm sure uh, mm-hmm. 
more good things to come um so before we wrap up here anything else you want to add that you might not have or we might not have talked about um and um you know that that you think from your past from your experience or something else uh, it's up to you so one so one thing that i think is quite neat for uh for college bound students at this at this time is that they have so many online resources mm-hmm. so if you are having trouble understanding a, a given concept uh you know at, at the undergraduate level or even at the graduate level they have so many there are so many online lectures available and so many uh resources out there so don't feel like you need to read the book necessarily to understand if you don't understand from reading the book or from going through some problems in the book go online look for lectures find uh you know find someone who can communicate the inf- the information to you effectively and just because you don't learn the same way as everyone else doesn't mean that you can't be good at it you just need to figure out what is going to work for for you um it, it's it's a different learning environment than i was used to when i was an undergraduate and even a graduate student but uh definitely try to be resourceful of and and look to see what what resources are available to you that's great um so isabel thank you so much for uh taking the time mm-hmm. this was uh um i learned a lot personally and thank you so much i think this will be extremely beneficial and uh, mm-hmm. i hope to stay in touch and um we'll talk soon yes thank you very much thank you yeah take care bye 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 hi again i hope you found professor isabel ojawo's story as inspiring as i did it's hard not to be swept up in the enthusiasm and drive that professor ojawo brings to research and her profession for the college bound i'm sure you'll find her experiences at rpi university of wisconsin madison and princeton university very useful for questions and comments on this podcast please email podcast at almamatters.io. Thank you so much for listening to today's podcast. Transcript for this podcast and previous podcasts are on almamatters.io forward slash podcasts. To stay connected with us, subscribe to Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts or Spotify or visit anchor.fm forward slash almamatters to check us out. Till we meet again, take care and be safe. Thank you.